0: This is At the Core of Care, a podcast where people share their stories about nurses and their creative efforts to better meet the health and healthcare needs of patients, families, and communities. I'm Sarah Hexum-Hubbard, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Our show today is about pediatric home care for medically complex children. And we're going to start with a story reported by our producer, Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media. It has to do with a five-year-old child named Xander Quilon who's had home care ever since he left the neonatal intensive care unit. Several of his nurses, including Valerie Kraus and Shelley Feinstein, talked with Stephanie about what's involved day to day on the job, the medical crises they faced along the way, and why they do this line of work. Like they say, if
1: you uh, love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And I love it. I'm very blessed to have the patients that I have, and it just sort of works out what I can give, what my strengths are. I've been paired with it, you know, with uh, the kids that need it.
0: Stephanie also spent time interviewing Xander's mother, Natalie Green. Natalie talked about her family's experience and what it takes to coordinate this type of care. At night, she works as a nurse outside of the home. And by day, Natalie is a social worker who helps out families like hers.
2: Well, I've bridged a lot of gaps with getting nurses in for families, which I think is huge because there's some families that have been struggling um, that were discharged and didn't even have nursing, which is totally
0: unacceptable. And at the end of the show, we'll step back from Xander's story and look at the bigger picture with Roy Maynard. Roy is a physician researching pediatric home care nurse shortages for medically complex children. He'll tell us about some of the challenges he's identified, including recruitment and retention of nurses to do these specialized jobs.
3: For a lot of people, being a pediatric home care nurse is not looked at as a profession. It's looked at as a stepping stone to get experience, to get a job in a hospital. And when you get a job in a hospital, you get better benefits, you have a better chance of employment.
0: But first, let's turn to the story that Stephanie reported for today's show, takes us to the borough of Ephrata in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Nearly 14,000 people live there. It's a little more than an hour from Philadelphia and just under an hour from Harrisburg, the state capital.
4: When I get off the highway for Ephrata, I drive over rolling hills and pass Amish farms in the surrounding countryside. And when I drive through the borough itself, I see there's a proper Main Street and still an independently owned pharmacy and business. As I find out later, that same pharmacy sometimes delivers prescriptions to the home of Natalie Green, which is where I'm headed. When I walk up the steps to the front porch of Natalie's brick duplex, I notice a small sign by the front door. It says, love every moment. The day I visit, it's around 8.15 in the morning. Natalie greets me at the door in her scrubs, having recently come off the night shift as a nursing floor supervisor at a retirement community. Both her mother and grandmother were nurses, and now one of her daughters is also pursuing the profession.
2: I always knew I wanted to be a nurse, but I went and got my business degree first because I didn't think I could cut it as a nurse. Why? (laughs) I didn't think I'd be smart enough. So I just talked myself out of it and got my business degree first, and I did business for like five years, and I said, I'm done with this. It's not what I want to do.
4: Natalie eventually changed her mind. She went to nursing school and became a licensed practical nurse. And today, Natalie's working four overnight shifts a week as an LPN. When she gets home in the morning, she takes a nap. But after she wakes up, Natalie gets right to work again and picks back up with her day job as a social worker and parent navigator for the technology-assisted children's home program. It's part of a nonprofit called the Health Promotion Council, which focuses on improving health outcomes within underserved communities. As you can imagine, Natalie doesn't sleep much, and throughout the day, she sips coffee from a large travel mug. She's working like this to save money and move into another home that she thinks would be better suited for her medically complex son, Xander.
2: I live in a two-story house, so I feel that my son deserves to have everything on one floor. It's more accessible. I could get a lift in here to help as my son gets older and bigger, so it's more safe for him, too, as well. So I am working very diligently to buy a ranch-style house for my son.
4: Natalie's husband also works around 40 hours a week in an automotive parts store. The morning I visit, he's wearing his uniform and is about to head out for work. But before he leaves, he sits down next to Xander, who's reclined on the sofa and covered with a soft blanket. Xander cannot speak, but he gazes intently at his father, who sits next to him for a bit, and hugs his son and gives him a kiss before walking out the door. Then the nurse, who's just started her day shift, snuggles up next to Xander and gives him hugs. I asked Natalie, what are some things that bring Xander joy?
2: Voices. He likes to hear people talk. Believe it or not, when me and his dad get into a little bit of a, I want to say, we raise our voices a little bit in discussion, Xander will fall asleep to that. He loves music. We play a lot of um, classical music for him. So he loves music. He's been listening to music since he was in utero. Touch, just being touched, the sensation of being touched, kissed, he thrives on that. Certain TV shows he likes and enjoys, he watches. Anything with music is huge with Xander. Being outside is a really huge thing. We actually had a swing set made for Xander that he'll be able to use for the next 20 years because he loves to be outside so much. So, and it gives him joy and makes him smile.
4: Before the night nurse, Valerie Krause, leaves to go home and sleep, she catches up with Shelly Feinstein, the nurse who's just come on shift for the day. They talk about what happened during the previous night and things to keep an eye on. And they also check in with Natalie, who says these morning chats are crucial to providing consistent and quality care for Xander. And there's actually a third nurse who's part of the home care team, but she's not there the day I visit. It's clear that Natalie and the nurses have a strong rapport. They're professional with each other, but also supportive, and they seem to make each other laugh as well. As Natalie sees it, Xander's team of nurses are vital to both her son and her family's quality of life. Because without the nurses who are our
2: backbone, we cannot work. We cannot go to work and thrive and do a nine-to-five job. Our whole life in a 24-hour period is disrupted if there's not a nurse to help us because we need that support. So I know without my nurses, I would never be able to work. I know a lot of parents that are home and they're the constant caregiver and then they're getting burnout. And if, you know, God forbid, you know, you end up in the hospital from dehydration and, you know, just burning out. then where does your child go? Your child gets put into the system. And that's a sad reality some of these parents are facing. And it's not a fair reality for these kiddos. They do well at home. They thrive at home. They need support. It takes a village to raise one special needs child. You can't do it on your own and government needs to really wake up and realize that instead of cutting our funding that these kiddos need they deserve to have a quality of life they deserve to have proper care at home institutions are now trying to keep a lot of people with intellectual disabilities as well as you know special needs kids in the home because they see they do well and they thrive well we need to have that strong
4: base around that child and nursing is an essential part of that base and in Xander's case the nurses not only provide care inside the home but also accompany the family on both short and long excursions.
2: The nurses come with us. It all depends. If, if we're home um, by ourselves and we're going to go for a walk, we just go. In a car, it requires two people to be with him, one driving and one sitting beside him at all times. So, yeah, our nurses are like our family. They go with us everywhere, whether we go for a visit up to my parents three and a half hours away, we decide we're going to the grocery store, or, you know, if we want to go to the park. They just become a part of your family and go with you everywhere.
4: I asked Natalie, what's it like to have nurses in her home for most of the day?
2: We're a very private family. So whenever you first bring a child home from the hospital with special needs, and then, you know, you have to have nursing on board, you're opening up your whole life to strangers that you don't even know. So there's a whole piece there that it's like, what am I going to do now? There's things I can't do now because the nurses are there or is this person going to, you know, judge me because there's laundry on my couch and I didn't fold it for that day. It's a huge transition, you know, just not for, you know, nurses, but also for the parents part of that as well. But if you want the best for your child, you always find that it's a puzzle. You always find those pieces that fit and eventually you figure it out and there's a compromise it all comes down to communication from day one, from moment one, when you meet that nurse. You tell them your expectations and what you want for your child. And some nurses won't always be a fit for your home. But when you find the right nurses, then it's like the skies open up.
4: And in Natalie's case, she's managed to keep the same nurses in place pretty much since Sandra came home from the neonatal intensive care unit or the NICU.
2: We've had longevity with our nurses. That's not the norm, that's not the typical norm at all, but these nurses are vested in my son. And communication's huge. The nurses know how I like things done for my son and what I expect. They're there on time. There's coffee every day for every shift under there. They get birthday presents from my son on their birthdays. They're involved in my son's birthday. So it's little things knowing that they feel they're appreciated for what they do because there's not a lot of appreciation with that job. This is more than just a job for some of these nurses. It's a passion. And if you show that you're appreciative, that's how you keep your nurses.
4: Before the night nurse, Valerie Kraus goes home to sleep for the day while her kids are at school, we sit down and talk. Valerie is a single mother and the breadwinner for her family. She lives 35 minutes away, but with the morning traffic, it can take her 45 minutes or longer to get home. She's a licensed practical nurse and worked her way up from being a certified nursing assistant, or CNA. I asked her why she got into the profession in the first place and whether anyone else in her family had ever been a nurse.
5: I did have one nurse in my family. She was my great aunt on my father's side, but I always wanted to be a nurse. I always wanted to help people. As stupid as that sounds, because <laughs> I mean I could go to the grocery store and help people, but <laughs> um, it was just always something that I wanted to do from a little kid on up. And my grandmother really supported that dream, and I spent a lot of time with my grandmother when I was little, and and my aunt actually that was a nurse. We used to go visit her weekly, so maybe that was how it all started. I don't know.
2: <laughs>
4: When Valerie got into nursing 11 years ago, she started out in a retirement community. Then she moved into home care and had a patient who required a trach, or breathing tube. And so she got the proper training through the agency where she was employed at the time. There's
5: packets that they give you, and then you go in for a four- to six-hour training course. And then they come out in the home and they monitor you. And then you have to work 40 hours with somebody before you can be considered trach vent-certed.
4: Once Valerie was trach vent certified, she was eligible to take on a range of new cases. And that was how she got connected with Xander's family. Natalie and her husband actually interviewed Valerie at the hospital before bringing Xander home from the NICU. And Valerie has been caring for him ever since. She currently spends five shifts a week with Xander and also cares for another child she's been with for the past seven years.
5: Well, I work days and nights with Xander. So nights, we come in and he usually spends a little bit of time with his parents or mom goes to work and then Xander goes up to his room. We transfer him and his equipment up there. And then after that, you know, he gets his two feeds and his meds throughout the night. Uh, we're on alert for seizures and giving his two feeds and flushes and his treatments and things like that. If he sleeps, then great. And if he doesn't, then we do range of motion and stretch him and things like that. But you always have to be on alert for anything with his trach, anything airway. Secretions, excessive secretions in his mouth sometimes can, you know, lead him to, cough or gag you know I've had some real experiences with Xander as far as medical crisis goes Um, and you know number one thing is you need to assess your patient before you look at those machines because there's been several times that the machines say that or have not registered he's not okay yet and you look at him and you can just tell and you know daytime it's just about trying to keep him up and active and you know, same thing, airway precautions, but trying to give him like an educational, you know, get him to learn different shapes, colors, sounds. His therapies come here into the home.
4: Every week, Xander does physical, occupational, and visual therapy with therapists who come to the house to work with him. And when I ask Valerie to go into more detail about the medical crises she's experienced with Sander, she checks in first with Natalie, who's sitting right there with us. Natalie gives Valerie a nod that it's okay to talk about what happened.
5: One of them was that he was running a temperature, was just very lethargic. He was starting to run a fever. He was having seizures, but they were very small tremor-like seizures. And we ended up, calling an ambulance and taking him to the nearest hospital. Um, they stabilized him and then ended up taking him to Hershey. But um, he had, had bacterial meningitis. And it's a tricky thing, you know, when your kiddos are sick because we thought he had an upper respiratory infection. He was put on an antibiotic, which masked some of the bacterial meningitis symptoms. So until it got to the point of fever and seizures, there would have been no other indication for us. And about a year and a half later, I was changing his diaper and he was now done going. And I was walked out and threw the diaper away and came back. And he just had a very blank look on his face. And he ended up having um, an aortic aneurysm and, you know, had to do CPR and call EMS. And um, you know, by the grace of God, he's a miracle child I <laughs> um, was in the hospital for several weeks after that as well. had to have heart surgery
4: and when that happened, were you here by yourself or was were you home? I, I
5: was here, but um Natalie was actually here. I was able to call, and she was able to come down and she actually assisted with the c p r and calling the ambulance so. The reason I say about the equipment is because I I could sense something was wrong with Xander before the equipment ever told me that there was anything wrong.
4: When I talk with Natalie later, she describes what Xander's recovery has been like since he contracted bacterial meningitis.
2: Well, he's come a long way from not being able to move his legs and his arms and his arms and legs being very rigid. Xander is very um, loose now. Um, He moves his arms and his legs whenever he feels like he's going to do it. Now, we have a stander down. He stands in the stander and it is totally body assisted, but he's bearing his own weight with that. He has come such a long way in that time, more than what they thought he would ever, because his bacteria meningitis was so severe. We didn't know if it was going to compromise his lungs, totally compromise his brain if he'd be a total vegetable, and Xander's proved them wrong. So every day, it's something little he does. I don't care how minute it is, he defies those
4: odds. Natalie is hoping Xander will make more progress after he switches to a ketogenic or keto diet, which he'll be able to receive in liquid form through his feeding tube.
2: We don't know for sure if Xander does have Seizures, and if he is having any, if they're ones that we're not seeing that are internal. So, a lot of kids go on the keto diet for the sole fact that the keto has been proven to stop seizures over a period of time being on there. And with Xander, um, since he was sick, we call it bringing him into the out. You could tell he wants to start to talk and wants to do certain things. So, we're hoping that this will help him neurologically too, to bring him out more and interact more with. The family.
4: When Natalie was pregnant with Xander, tests came back that he was at risk for trisomy 18, a genetic disorder. And then in her third trimester, Natalie developed complications.
2: He came at 34 weeks. There was not enough blood from the placenta to Xander, so I opted to have him early.
4: And by the time Xander was three weeks old, he had to have a surgical procedure known as a PDA ligation. He ended up staying in the hospital for about six months. And one month before he came home, Xander was given a trach vent. Natalie recalls the training that she and her husband had to go through before they could bring Xander home.
2: It's a six-week minimum training every day for the vent before you can even come home. And they have no problem coming up and pulling a plug to see if you know where it goes and just acting like they didn't do anything. And they want you to make sure you are almost an expert before you come home. Now, even though I've been in nursing for 30-something years, I am not trach vent. Um, I only became trach vent when I had my son. So it, pediatric is a whole different ball game compared to geriatric. The dosages are different. It's just a whole different world. I think it's a very rewarding job. I mean, I think it's the most rewarding job you can have. You know, I work, like I said, with geriatric, and I work a lot with end of life. These people have had a full life, so it's rewarding to help them pass to the next life. But when you work peds, you're helping them have a life from the beginning. So you're helping them have a good quality of life. That's huge. That's huge.
4: After Valerie leaves to go home and rest, I get a chance to sit down and talk with the other nurse, Shelly Feinstein. Natalie takes Shelly's place on the sofa next to Xander. She hugs him and talks to him. During my conversation with Shelly, I ask her to take a moment to explain all the different machines that are part of Xander's home
1: care. I'll start from the bottom up. That's the humidifier that goes with the ventilator. That gives him humidified air, which is warm. Normally our mouths and nose humidify. Mars secretions we can cough up, get rid of, and they're loose. If he wouldn't have that, he could form, it would get harder, and it would be harder for him to cough up, which could cause a mucus plug. Okay, and that's not good. And there's a whole bunch of numbers on there. He does breathe on his own. He gets a minimum of 10 breaths, okay? And the flashing lights up there, that it shows what his other numbers are that we deal with, but also it shows how many breaths he's doing. 10 is the minimum, he has 22 breaths. So he's doing 12 over. So that's good, that's good. Some kids ride the vent, we call it, let them breathe for them when they sleep. And he doesn't, he's breathing on his own. So he's definitely a candidate for hopefully to get off the vent someday, someday you know, God willing, in the creek don't rise, you know, so to speak. And then that's the tube feeding, right there, the little square thing. We put this formula in there, and that goes into his tummy. And over there, that's a cough That helps give him deep breaths to cough for him to bring out if there's any mucus in his lungs to prevent infection. And that little thing over there that's flashing the top number is his oxygen in his blood, and the bottom number is his
4: pulse. And how often was it, like I think Natalie was saying, was it like every hour you
1: Every check? hour we definitely do a check. Now, since we're sitting right there and we don't have any other patients, we're always on it. We're always looking. If he's coughing, I'll look to see what his breaths are, what the pressures are,
4: different things like that. So... In the event problems do arise with any of the machines, the nurses and Natalie try to troubleshoot. And if they can't solve the problem, they call a representative from the Durable Medical Equipment Supply Company to come out to the house. And on a periodic basis, Natalie has arranged for a respiratory therapist from the hospital to come out and check Xander's trach vent. To make sure it's working properly. But as Shelley explains, there is backup equipment just in case the power goes out or the machines malfunction.
1: We are knowledgeable enough to know uh, what to do to play with it. There's always more we could learn, but we also have backup equipment here in case something would go majorly wrong until, you know, the company would get here to replace an item.
4: Over the course of a typical week, Shelley spends five to six days with Xander, working shifts of nine to 12 hours at a time. She's a registered nurse and was previously a licensed practical nurse. Shelley decided to go into home care eight years ago and has spent the last five years caring for Xander.
1: It's nice to have continuity and consistency of care. Like with Xander, you get to know when he's not good or when he is. You know, you get to know what an eye look or a little smile is for him. You get to know what, when he's happy and when he's not. When to panic, when not to panic.
4: And I could see, you know, from the core of my eye, you know, you really giving him hugs. and oh, absolutely. Um, That's more for, for me. He's probably going,
1: lady, get away from me. Stop the smooches. I think every kid needs that, loves, gets that, wants that, and it helps them thrive. He should be treated just like any other kid, you know? Like I said, love and attention and telling them they're important and they're wonderful and because he can hear, he can hear us. He knows and he can know by the touch and you know, he's had such a rough time with everything that's been thrown at him. You know, a few extra kisses might help, you know? His good feeling, his inner, you know, his inner strength, wanting to stay.
4: And to help motivate Xander, Shelley says she's made a concerted effort to provide him with a daily routine.
1: Just about every day I look through a book of colors with him and we say the same rhymes and the same things every day. So hopefully I, you know, say, say it with me. He can't say it out loud, but hopefully he's saying in his head. Blue is the color of the sky, things like that. Um, we try to have a consistency what we do every day. When I get here, he's having breakfast. I always say I like to have breakfast with him. while we eat together. And then after that, we do some range of motion around a certain time. I start the bath just to give him a consistency of this is what we do every day, you know, especially with me. Uh, and then we have our uh, therapies that come. And then in the afternoon, you know, we do different things. We might do some reading. Sometimes he takes a nap, so he knows what's planned, what's coming up, and consistency with kids, I think, is important. You know, it makes them less stressful. And it's nice that we have the same nurses come in, because you don't know what he's feeling inside with different people that they don't know. Is he, is he confident? Is he not, uh, you know, feel that the person is gonna take care of me correctly? Because when you can't breathe, there's something, you know, nothing else matters. And we're very fortunate that we have the same nurses.
4: So did you pretty much meet them right after he came home from the hospital too, um, or a little
1: after? I, I met him, he was 10 months old. So yeah, and watching him grow and watching him start to make real strides and then watching him get the bacterial meningitis, that took us way back. So, you know, we always tell him that, you know, hey, when you're ready, I'm ready. Come on out, get, you know, get out of the fog, come on out. You know, we're keeping your joints nice and uh, fluid, so when you do want to ride your big wheel, you're ready. <laughs> Toys are here, you know, this is your neighborhood. We try to stimulate all the senses so he feels, you know. We do little tastes, we do smells, and even if he doesn't like it, it's a reaction, and that's a positive thing. I'll get some spices and put them up to his nose Uh, see if he can smell. I'll go to um, a salad bar and I'll just get a little piece of pineapple, strawberry, and just, you know, put the juice on his tongue to see what taste he likes. And it's amazing how he, you know, really tries to suck on it. And it seems like lately when he wants more, he sticks his tongue out like this so we can
4: put it on there. And I was like, that's awesome. Besides Xander, Shelley has two other pediatric cases at the moment, one with a teenager who she's cared for over the past five years and a recent case involving an infant. She barely has free time.
1: And like they say, if you uh, love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And uh, I love it. I'm very blessed to have uh, the patients that I have And um, it just sort of works out what I can give, what my strengths are. I've been paired with it, you know, with uh, the kids that need it. And I couldn't imagine doing anything else. I feel I'm making a difference for the child, but as well as the family, because we can come in and, like Mom said, when the fit is good, she can go upstairs and sleep. She can take care of the rest of her family. She can make a living for the rest of her family. So in a way, you know, it's like the butterfly effect. We're touching them, and then she's touching the people at her job, and it just keeps going. So, you know, it might not be glorified, but in a way, it is. You know, we're helping in the whole process of somebody else's life.
4: During our conversation, Natalie talks about how she used to live in Altoona, a city in central Pennsylvania, and that she moved to Ephrata around 2002. At the time, Natalie was raising her three oldest kids, who are now adults, and she hadn't yet met Xander's dad. I asked Natalie, why did she choose Ephrata? And she tells me that she threw a dart at the map of Pennsylvania, and that's where it landed.
2: It became very drug infested in Altoona, Pennsylvania. So I wanted a better life for my children. So I took a dart, I threw it at the map and it hit Efforta, Pennsylvania. I had no clue. I came down here within a week, had a job, had a place to stay and within two weeks, relocated my kids. At one point when I first moved here, it was very quiet. You could leave your door unlocked in this community. Now I would not advise, leave your door unlocked. There's a lot of drugs floating around this area now. Crime is becoming more relevant because of the drug issue.
4: But uh, uh, my neighbors, we all look out for each other, so. If she had to move again, I asked Natalie where she might throw the dart next. Maybe Philadelphia, since I get
2: pulled there all the time. So I'm good right now where I'm at. I will not lose the nurses I have for my son. That's the hugest part of the reason why I would stay in this area. My son has a very strong bond with his nurses. They're like family, so I would never uproot my son unless I took them with me. Now, if I do go, it's gonna to be to a beach area, so you know, my nurses are gonna be right along with me, so I'm good. i get the sun and the fun at the
4: same time. Between Natalie's firsthand experience of having a medically complex, technology-dependent child at home and being a nurse, she brings a lot to her day job as a social worker and parent navigator. Natalie works for the Technology Assisted Children's Home program, and she's going to explain who the program serves. It's any child that has medical
2: complex needs. They don't have to be on a ventilator and a G-tube. They could have, you know, several policy, muscular dystrophy. As long as they have diagnoses under their belt, I mean, we have kids that are autistic. So it all depends on what their diagnoses are. I always say, call, email us. It doesn't matter if we can help the child, we'll find a way to help that child. And our organization is free. We do not take money from parents. Everything we do is for the parent and it is free of charge. The majority I've noticed of the parents that we do help are lower income to medium income levels. Insurance is not an issue. It doesn't matter if you have private insurance, if you have public insurance, or if you have dual insurance, that's not an issue for us.
4: The program currently serves families in 31 of Pennsylvania's 67 counties, and Natalie assists nearly a dozen families across southeastern and central Pennsylvania. She helps them navigate the healthcare system and spends a lot of time on the phone talking with them and sending emails. And sometimes she even visits them in their homes.
2: I usually get referrals for families, and the families usually enrolled in the program at least a year and a half, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, depending on the family need. When I get the referral, I call talk to family. I do a pre-intake interview to see exactly what the strengths and weaknesses are of the family, what the child needs, uh, what kind of diagnosis they have, and see what I can do to help that family. And depending on where they're at in the system, it could be uh, a lot of hands-on um, organizational skills, needs, a lot, a lot of teaching about different diagnoses and uh, medications, could be they need certain supplies or equipment, So, or they need help navigating through transition if they're starting school or if they're becoming an adult. So it varies day to day on which families I help. We do a lot of parent empowerment. It's not just strictly about our kiddos. We like our parents to have a voice, and we try to help them learn to have a voice, to be an advocate for their child, as well as for themselves, and take that time that you need, to take care of yourself, because if you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of your child properly. So we try to do a lot of empowerment and help parents learn different coping mechanisms and different ways
4: to relieve stress. Besides stress management, Natalie helps educate families about the services and coverage they're entitled to.
2: That's what we try to do. We try to bridge those gaps. There are families that don't even know that they're entitled up to the age of five to get. They have certain therapies that will come in the home. A lot of parents don't even understand they can get that at home for their child. There are certain services and certain things you can get at home to make your life a little easier instead of always having to run outside the home to get services. You know, there's things that we can help parents with just to navigate, like I said again, through the system in order to have a better quality of life for their children and themselves. I've bridged a lot of gaps with uh, getting nurses in for families, which I think is huge because there's some families that have been struggling um, that were discharged and didn't even have nursing, which is totally unacceptable. Every hospital has like a home care team that should be working with a parent and educating the parent on things that not that they need, but they deserve for their child. And nursing is something that they should already have in place or have some kind of process in place before they leave that hospital to help properly care for their child at home. But like I said, once again, what they're running into is they're just not enough Um, specialty nurses. If your child is a tier one and doesn't have a G-tube and a trach, you can get nursing quicker than you can for some of these other kiddos. And they're waiting in the hospital in order to go home because there's just not
4: enough nurses. Before Natalie and I wrap up our conversation at her house, I ask her one final question about the sign at her front door, the one that says love every moment, and whether she put it up recently or a while ago.
2: That's been up for like, I would say... We got this new door about what, three and a half years ago maybe? And I put that up then. (sighs) Life is too short. You don't know, you're never guaranteed tomorrow. You know, I don't know, I I mean, Xander might outlive me, I might outlive him, I don't know, nobody knows. So, you know, you gotta relish what you have, you have to be grateful for what you have. And that's what we try to live by.
0: We just heard a story that provides a clear example of how nurses integrate into a family's life on a daily basis to provide consistent and high quality specialized care for a medically complex child. It's a situation in which the stakes are high, the patients are vulnerable, and children like Xander rely on nurses and family members to keep them alive. As Natalie mentioned, some kids end up staying in the hospital longer than anticipated as there aren't enough nurses to meet the demand for specialized pediatric home care. The shortage of pediatric home care nurses for medically complex children, like Xander, is an issue around the country, and hospital executives and nursing educators are grappling with this problem. Keep in mind, medically complex children are among some of the highest cost patients, and they're at higher risk for developing infections and other medical complications, meaning that upon discharge, any responsible hospital must make sure that high-quality care at home is in place before these kids can leave. But the reality is not enough nurses are trained to deliver this type of care, or they lack experience. It seems rare to find nurses like Valerie and Shelley who are pursuing pediatric home care as their profession. To help us put this all into perspective, we're going to hear now from Roy Maynard. Roy is the medical director at Pediatric Home Service in Minnesota. He's a retired pediatric pulmonologist and neonatologist from the Children's Hospital of Minnesota.
3: During my neonatology career, most of my inpatient time was spent on our step-down unit where lots of infants with chronic medical conditions were kept until they went home. And a certain percentage of those children had tracheostomy tubes and were ventilator dependent. And I decided that I wanted to be part of taking care of those children outside of the hospital too. And so I devoted the majority of my career to dealing with technology-dependent children with medical complexity. And that's how I became um, fairly knowledgeable in the field. Now, when I was a, a practicing physician, you don't have much time to do research studies or think about research studies. And so even when I was practicing clinical medicine, I knew there was a problem that was very common that when we trached and ventilated a child, we just automatically knew and we would tell parents all the time, it's gonna be two, three months till we can get home care nurses hired for you. So it wasn't till I came to pediatric home service uh, nine years ago And I was involved in the clinical meetings. And the one that I sat through every Thursday morning was the respiratory therapy department here who takes care of the children and families who are ventilator and technology dependent at home. And, you know, it took me a few years to get through recognizing it, but they always discuss the patients that just got discharged home or have impending discharges to be home. And the most common scenario I heard week after week after week was, well, this kid's ready to go home, but they can't get home care nurses. And every week we would hear that from three to five to six respiratory therapists would say, yeah, this kid's ready to go home, but they're waiting to hire home care nurses. So it became readily apparent that this was beyond what my perspective, my tunnel vision of the problem was, and that this was more global uh, than I had anticipated. I decided that it was really important that we recognize uh, how big the elephant is in the room. So I approached colleagues at the four children's hospitals that are mentioned in the paper, and I said, is this a problem for your institution? Of course, everybody said yes, 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 and yes. And I said, you know, I'm willing to put together a study to Identify just how big this problem is, what the cost is to our society, and uniformly everybody agreed to participate.
0: So Roy and his colleagues went on to organize the research study. They figured out how to do data collection at each of the four hospitals involved. They also came up with definitions for the study, including breaking down patients by the number of nursing care hours they'd be going home with. The team deliberated over who the control group would be.
3: You know, initially, the big interest was kids going home for the first time because they're the ones that had the biggest delays. You really can't have a control group because we're we're not looking at kids not going home with nursing. We're only looking at kids going home with nurses. So in a way, the best control group we could use was kids who already had pre-existing home care nurses. So it's not a great control group. But it's a separate group and you can kind of look at some comparisons there. So I think it was really value that we looked at those two cohorts. Kids going home for the first time with nursing and children who were hospitalized for whatever reason and being discharged back home to their pre-established home care nurses. The key bullet point that we added for our patients was that they had to be discharging to home with extended hours of nursing care, and for the definition for the study, they had to be going home with a minimum of at least eight hours a week of nursing care. So that pretty much excludes skilled nursing visits because those are usually done for an hour every other day or three times a week or something like that. And as published in the paper, you can see that I think it was like more than 70% of the patients had more than 40 hours a week of nursing care.
0: As the team headed into the study, they developed a working hypothesis, as Roy explains here.
3: Our working hypothesis with the research study was that we were pretty sure that the greatest obstacle to discharging these children was a lack of home care nursing. Many of these children were ventilator-dependent and... You know if the child decannulates himself and his tracheostomy tube falls out the baby's not able to put it back in. The recommendations are that they should have somebody who's awake 24 hours a day at the bedside because it's only a matter of minutes without the tube in place or oxygen and these children can either die or have a severe neurological deficit. So we were pretty sure that nursing was the greatest obstacle. So What we found was that the greatest obstacle to discharging these children who are going home with prescribed home care nursing is that there's not enough home care nurses. And that's contributing to their prolonged hospitalization. And as a consequence, it's increasing healthcare expenditures. And what we estimated was it was increasing the hospital bills by about $170,000 per patient. That's a lot of money.
0: But there are other factors contributing to delayed discharges as well, which Roy and his research team found out from the study.
3: In the existing population, it's less common to find a delayed discharge because of the issue with nursing. And it's pretty obvious, right? They're being discharged back home in your pre-established nursing. So the only way that they don't have that nursing is if they had a prolonged hospitalization When that child is in the hospital, let's say it's a kid who has a cardiac condition, he goes back in for a follow-up surgical procedure on his heart, and he ends up having a complication from that surgery and has a prolonged hospitalization for, say, four weeks or six weeks. Well, the home care nurses that were involved in that child's care pre-hospitalization or before that surgical procedure, they're not getting paid while the kid is in the hospital. They don't have an income. And after a period of time, because there's such a shortage of home care nurses, it's very easy for them to migrate to another nursing agency and get another patient through someone else. So when that child that we talked about that had the cardiac surgery is now ready to go home, guess what? Half his nurses jumped ship and went to another nursing agency because they could not bear to be unemployed for an extended period of time. But in the manuscript, we did discuss some of the other causes here. And waiting for home care nurses accounted for 94% of delayed discharge days for new patients and 71% of delayed discharge days for patients with existing home care nurses.
0: Besides the lack of nurses, Roy and the team looked at how various social situations could also lead to delayed discharges.
3: You know, an example could be the mother's incarcerated or the father's incarcerated. They have an inadequate home. Some homes cannot meet the electrical demands of a technology-dependent child, so they have to find new housing that can accommodate that. Some families are just not capable of providing care for the child and some of those children have to go into medical foster care. So there are other causes besides waiting for home care nurses to be hired up.
0: And systemically, there's not a big enough pool of qualified and available nurses to meet the current demands. Roy explains that one of the barriers is retention.
3: And so what's happening is, however, when the nurses do graduate from their nursing schools, They have limited experience, right? So they're right out of nursing school. They take their nursing boards. They pass. Now they can go look for a job. The reality is hospitals are not going to hire them with rare exception unless they have experience. So how do you get experience? Well, the easy way to get experience is you apply for a job as a home care nurse and you work as a home care nurse for a period of time, and then... You can apply for a position as a hospital-based nurse. For a lot of people, being a pediatric home care nurse is not looked at as a profession. It's looked at as a stepping stone to get experience to get a job in a hospital. And when you get a job in a hospital, you get better benefits, you have a better chance of employment.
0: One of the big takeaways from the study for Roy is that recruitment efforts around pediatric home care nursing need to be addressed in the short run. For example, At Pediatric Home Service in Minnesota, where Roy works, there's a simulation lab where nursing students come to learn more about what pediatric home care for medically complex children is like. And here in Pennsylvania, the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing has recently started doing home care clinical rotations to give nursing students more exposure. But in the long run, to reduce delayed discharges, Roy suggests more post-acute care or long-term care facilities might be needed to get medically complex kids out of hospitals sooner and matched up with nursing as they transition on their way back home. At the same time, Roy also thinks there needs to be a serious effort to professionalize pediatric home care nursing and increase salaries to help stem the shortages medically complex children are facing today and will continue to face as they wait in hospitals to go home. Special thanks to Natalie Green, Shelley Feinstein, Valerie Kraus, and Roy Maynard for taking time to talk with us. The Technology Assisted Children's Home Program is part of the Health Promotion Council, which is a subsidiary of the Public Health Management Corporation. Funding for this podcast comes from the Center to Champion Nursing in America, which is a joint initiative of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, AARP, and AARP Foundation, along with the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. You can find out more about us and our programs at paactioncoalition.org. Follow us on social media at paaction. We'd love to hear from you. Stephanie Marudas of Covinda Media is our producer, and I'm Sarah Hexam Hubbard of the Pennsylvania Action Coalition. Thanks for joining us. Until next time.